In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Hulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Now, before I begin with the summary for the book for this past week, I want to announce the book for this next week. It is Altered Traits by Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson. Altered Traits. The science reveals how meditation changes your mind, brain, and body. Uh, Many of you might be familiar with the name Daniel Goleman. He wrote the book Emotional Intelligence in the mid-90s and continued to do work on emotional intelligence and social intelligence. I have not read this book, but it looked interesting, and it's a new book that uh, discusses a lot of the recent research on meditation, so I thought it would be worth reading and talking about next week. But let's talk about the book for this past week. It's The Champion's Mind by Jim Aframo. The Champion's Mind, How Great Athletes Think, Train, and Thrive. And as I mentioned last week, this is a book that is about sports psychology, which deals a lot with things like performance and how to prepare yourself mentally, physically, and also how to prepare to perform at your best level. And someone might be listening and thinking, well, maybe if I'm not an athlete, this book has nothing to do with me. But we all perform in our lives, in different ways. And we all have to prepare for whatever it is we do. So I felt that when I read this book, there was things that I took even in exercise and working out and playing sports, but also just things that applied to my everyday life that I think most of you could relate to as well. So I'll try to keep it in that vein where it's not just specifically about sports, but making those connections between sports and our own lives. One important message that I really found throughout the book is that it's important to have a feeling of self-worth that doesn't actually tie into your performance or is not dependent on your performance. And this can be true whether you're an athlete and you're saying, I have to win a championship, or if you're just someone who is pursuing business or some kind of degree and thinks, I have to be the best. Because if we don't have this feeling of, I'm good enough as I am, then we're always going to be striving towards proving ourselves to be worth something. I have to do well. I have to do good. I have to win to be worth something. And as I always like to say, what you want to do is make sure you're chasing a dream rather than running away from a nightmare. And by that, I mean, if you're chasing a dream, that means I'm already good. I love myself. I value myself. And because I value myself, I want to do the best I can and achieve the best I can and even give all that I can. That's chasing a dream. Running away from a nightmare means I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm nothing, and I have 
to win, I have to be successful. I have to make money so that I'm not a loser, so that people won't think I'm a loser. And most importantly, so I won't think I'm a loser. So in that case, you're running away from a nightmare. But we want to already feel good about ourselves. And if we have that feeling of self-worth, then we move towards something that is actually good. We try to achieve whatever it is we can to achieve greatness. So this is something that I think does separate good performers from poor performers, whether it's sports or in other realms. If you already feel good about yourself, then when you're, it comes time to perform, you'll try your best, but you won't actually feel that if I mess up, I'm a failure or a loser, or if I don't win this, my life is nothing. And in the book, uh, Dr. Aframo talks about this, looking at big game scenarios. And he says that there are some errors that people make that athletes make in major events. And the three that he talks about are overemphasizing the outcome, trying too much and tracking the negative. So in overemphasizing the outcome, that essentially deals with what I was just mentioning, that I have to win this championship to be something or to be valued or to be remembered, or I have to win this game, or if it's a job interview, I have to get this or people won't be proud of me or I won't feel good. But if you actually feel that I'd like to win or I'd like to get this job, but I'm okay without it, you actually will perform better than when you overemphasize the importance of what it is you're doing. The second one he mentions is trying too much. And if you watch sports, sometimes you'll see the player who wants to win so bad or thinks they have to win so bad, they actually do too much. They don't do things the way they usually do it. They try to either rush themselves or try too hard. They maybe shoot the ball too hard because they're so excited or think they have to try even harder and actually miss the target. And we can do this in our lives too. When we actually try too hard or try to force something to happen, we're more likely to not succeed in what it is we're doing. And the last one is tracking the negative. And by this, he's talking about focusing on what's going wrong. So you're in the big game and you really want to win and every little thing that doesn't go your way affects you too much and you're tracking all the bad things that are happening but missing the positive and also missing the fact that even in something that works out some things go wrong so this could even be in your relationship if you're constantly tracking the bad things that are happening you're going to probably have a very negative view of your relationship but if you can focus on also the good things that are happening you'll feel much better about it and actually can contribute to more good things happening as well now, throughout the book, he also mentions some important topics for training, which again, doesn't just relate to me in athletics, but in life in general. So for example, delayed gratification. And of course, any goal you want to achieve requires you to be able to delay gratification. I want something in the future. And because of that, right now, I'm going to do something that actually doesn't feel as good or as comfortable because I want to achieve that goal. I have a test next week. All my friends want to go out tonight. It's probably going to be a lot of fun, a lot more fun than sitting in my room reading this book. But because I want that good grade, because I care about my education and my future, I'm going to stay at home. And even actually, since I said read a book, I feel that with my books each week. Sometimes I'd rather do something else, but because I've made this goal to read a book every week, I have to sit size and read that book, even though something else might be more pleasurable, more fun. But to me, it's worth it, and I feel proud that I make that choice each time that I make it. And that leads to another aspect of what he talks about, which is making goals. So 
to achieve greatness, it takes hard work. As I just mentioned, it takes delay and gratification. And the goal has to mean something to you in order for you to put in that hard work, to put in the difficult times that it will take and overcome the obstacles to get to that goal. So it's important to spend some time and actually visualize your goal. Why is it important to you? What would it mean to you to achieve that goal? Or even why do you want to achieve that goal? Because it's going to take that motivation, that excitement to get to point from point A to point B to keep you going day in and day out. So it's very important to set those goals. And in this book, he talks a lot about gold medals. But for most of us, that's not going to be the ultimate goal. But we have to come up with the goals that mean something to us. And no one else can set your goal for you because you have to be the one that cares about it. You have to be the one that values it. He also talks a lot about the importance of meditation and breathing and staying focused. Um, as I mentioned, next week's book is going to focus on the power of meditation. But he talks in this book about how, if, as an athlete, it's important to be focused and to be in the moment. And this is where mindfulness, again, shows its head as something so important. If you're an athlete and you are asked to do something in that moment, if you're focused too much on the past and mistakes you made, or if you're too worried about the outcome, are we going to win? Are we going to lose? Am I going to be the champion? Am I going to be gold medalist? Am I not even going to make it on the platform? You're not going to be able to do your best in that given moment. And so we want to be focused on what we have control over. And the only time you have control over is now, is the moment that you are currently in. And of course, in athletics, we see this so often where you can tell that someone is too focused on the outcome or they're too worried about what's going to happen and they're not in the moment. But of course, we're all doing this every day in our own lives. You can be a parent and you see your kid have a reaction and you get so scared about, does this mean my kid is sick or has a problem or is going to fail or have this issue or that issue, that you totally lose sight of interacting with your child in the moment of being the best parent you can be, the only time you can be the best parent you can be, which is right now. What can I say to my kid to connect with them? How can I be there for him or her? How can I be the best parent I can be in the moment? And that's, I think, a very important message for us all to remember. Be the best you can be right now. Leave tomorrow for tomorrow and leave yesterday where it was. How can I be the best parent I can be? How can I be the best father I can be? How can I be the best worker I can be? And how can I even be the best to myself? And that's something I think very important that we reflect on every day. How, what did I do today that makes me feel good about myself and working towards my goals? What will I be proud of tomorrow that I did today? How can I utilize my moment the best way that I can? Now in the book, he also shares some really interesting stories from um, as he calls them, Zen stories. But one that I really liked was called The Statue. And essentially, it was about this young man who comes across a statue that was like a family heirloom passed down from generations. And it's kind of made out of clay and not something, a very precious metal or anything so nice. So he tries to put gold on it. So he puts gold on it and he keeps trying to put this gold on it, but it doesn't quite work. Finally, his grandfather comes to him and shows him that underneath that clay was solid gold. So the statue that he had, which he thought was clay and wasn't very nice, and that he thought he had to dress up to make it look nice, at the core of it was something beautiful and valuable. And he uses this as a sports 
analogy, but to me it's an analogy about people in general and how we live our lives. Most of us look at ourselves and we see clay. We see something not that nice or presentable, or we constantly are wishing that we looked different or appeared different or our status was different. So we try to make it seem that way. We act as if we're something we're not. We put things on to make it look that way, or we say stories to make us appear what we think makes us better. But as the story shows us, what we actually can recognize is what's within us is much more beautiful, much more valuable than anything we can fake put on ourselves or pretend is on us. When we get to our core, when we get to who we really are, we'll see that there's so much more beauty there so much more value there than we could have even imagined. And that's something that I think is so true for every person I've enc encountered. And even for myself, I try to remind myself that if I can connect to the gems within myself and bring those out, that's much greater than any image I can try to put out there or any way I can try to act to make someone like me. So never forget that at your core, you're gold. Within yourself, you are gold. You have to just reach in and bring that out. You don't have to be anyone else or try to become someone else. You have to just bring the best of yourself out. So the book was an enjoyable read. Um, it was fairly simple, straightforward. So if you enjoy sports psychology, you might like this book. And like I said, I think people can relate to it, even if they are not an athlete or focus on that. Um, but again, the book is The Champion's Mind by Jim Aframo. So you can check that one out. But also you can pick up Altered Traits by Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson. I'll be talking about that on next Monday's show. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Again, the studio number is 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lockwee. We'll be right back. back again our studio number 3104410555 in the first segment i was talking about the champion's mind a book by dr jim aframo which is on sports psychology and amongst lots of things he talks about having a pre-game routine and we know that routines can help us uh, become more comfortable with what we're doing and also make it easier for us to get to a task uh, but there's some thing that we have to do every day that actually pre-game routine would help us in and that's sleep for many people sleep is something that they want more of they need more of but also when it comes time to get it very often they find they can't sleep um, in the uh, art of loving eric Fromm talks about how people are half asleep while they're supposed to be awake and then half awake when they're trying to sleep which is kind of funny. We're not, again, goes back to that idea of not being in the moment, not able to do the task at hand. So what can be very helpful is to have a pre-sleep routine that you have every night. Now, when I say that, I think most people think I'm talking about with children where they have kind of a bedtime routine, which is very, very important and highly recommended that you have a consistent and calming routine with your children that you do every night, that they know what to expect and also what you're doing is helping them wind down, maybe taking a bath or a shower, uh, turn down the lights so they're not as bright, get them to their room, have story time, whatever it might be. Um, actually, I was just in Fresno with family and 
my cousin Pedro and his wife Isla. They have two very sweet twins, Ryan and Layla, who are close to six years old, and they have a very nice bedtime routine. But with all the family there, they added having each family member come in to have a little story time or talk to them. And it was incredibly sweet um, for us, uh, but nice to see that they had this routine that helped them get ready for bed and then they would go to sleep. But it's not just for the kids. It's important for us as well. So there are some generals that you can look up easily, and I'll say some of them about sleep hygiene that will help you prepare prepare for sleep. Things like um, avoiding caffeine or even nicotine close to sleep or alcohol or drugs. Making sure you don't expose yourself to screens one hour before sleep, which most of us don't do. I think the majority of people actually are looking at screens so the second they want to go to sleep. Um, the most common thing is for people to be holding their phone in the dark, scrolling through something, looking, and then putting their phone away and trying to fall asleep. I say that as someone who actually does that on a lot of nights. I try to do it less and read a book before I sleep, but there's many nights where I do look at my phone as well. But that's very bad for sleep, and we know that. Um, also, if you can't fall asleep for 20 minutes and you're in bed, get out of bed. You know, people, they say I was tossing and turning for four or five hours. We know that that's not good. Once you can't fall asleep, go do something. Now, don't do something that's too, um, that wakes you up too much. Reading a book is actually a great one. Uh, maybe listening to a relaxing song could work. Whatever it is for you, but do something relaxing, but get yourself out of bed. Because what unfortunately starts to happen is if you have a lot of sleepless nights and sleepless time in your bed, you unfortunately start to associate your bed with a place where sleep doesn't happen. It's kind of like a type of conditioning and reinforcement. You feel like I don't fall asleep here. And so they say, don't let that happen. If you don't fall asleep for 20 minutes, don't keep fighting it. Just recognize, okay, it looks like I'm not falling asleep yet. Let me get out of bed. But I wanted to talk about another aspect of the bedtime routine, which I think is important. And I touched on it a bit uh, in the previous segment. And that is reflecting on your day, because that's something that most of us don't do. And uh, now I'm blanking if it was Aristotle or Socrates, but it was one of the great philosophers who said an unexamined life is not worth living. And if we don't look at our own life, we don't look at what we're doing, what in fact are we doing or we can't even be sure we're happy with what it is we do. So there's a few questions you can ask yourself every night to reflect on your day, to look at what you did, didn't do, and what you maybe can learn from what happened in your day. So you can start on a positive note. What did I do today that I felt was good or even that I could be proud of? And think about that. Maybe it was um, exercising in the morning. Maybe it was a nice conversation you had with one of your kids where you felt like you really connected or something you did at work. Hopefully it could be many things that you can reflect on that you are happy about that you did, but really take some time to commend yourself for them, to, to recognize that you can be proud of yourself for those good things that you did. Another important question to ask is, how did I waste my time today? Now that might seem like uh, maybe a funny one or a strange one. But if we look at our day, we'll see that there was a lot of time that we wasted. And by wasted time, I don't mean something you enjoyed or taking a break and relaxing because you need to do those things. So sometimes that's very good. 
and you're getting ready for sleep, as I was talking about, and that's not a waste of time at all, even though sometimes people think, well, I'm doing nothing. No, you're not doing nothing. You're giving your body what it needs to recuperate to then be able to face the next day and to be at the top of your game and the top of your abilities. Everyone needs sleep, even though people sometimes think it's something they can bargain with or, oh, well, it's just sleep. I'll do it later. We know that even as adults, we still need seven and a half hours of sleep to be at your game, uh, top of your game. And sometimes people think, well, I don't get affected by sleep deprivation. Absolutely, you do. Now, maybe it's to varying degrees, but we all need sleep. So what did you do today that was not a good use of your time, that you wasted time? For many people, that's, as I mentioned earlier, on their phone, scrolling through, looking at their Facebook news feed for the 12th time today, maybe hoping something changed. Um, that's a big one, being on their phones. Or it could be that you knew you had to do something, but you put it off and you feel like that was a waste of time. And in this whole process, I would hope that you do this with a sense of loving, not coming from a punitive place of, let me judge myself, let me get mad at myself, put myself down, but it's in recognizing, okay, what did I do because I want to do better tomorrow? That should be the perspective, not I want to judge myself today. It's that let me learn so that tomorrow I can do even better. Because again, I love myself. I want what's best for me. I don't need to beat myself up. I just want to be better for myself. So what did I do today that was a waste of time? The next one is either what I did wrong or what I think I could have done better. Now, again, this is where having that loving attitude is even more important because it can be very easy to beat ourselves up over mistakes we made or things we could have done better. And it's not about harping on the negative, but if you ask me in any day, you should be able to think of 20, 30 things that you either did wrong or could have done better. And this is something I tell parents and, and couples to think about. As a parent, you should be able to think of many ways that you could have been a better parent that day. Doesn't mean you were a bad parent. Doesn't mean you're a bad mom or dad overall, but it means that you could have done things better. Could I have been more loving to my son when I was telling him something? Could I have, again, put my phone away and been more connected to my kid when we were playing instead of keep checking my emails? Uh, could I have actually spent more time with them than I did? These are the things I'm talking about. Or even as a partner, you should be able to think of many ways you could have been a better partner to your husband, wife, boyfriend, or girlfriend every single day. It's, again, not about beating yourself up or saying you're not good at it, but recognizing there's always room for growth. How could I have been better to my partner today? Could I have checked in more with them? Could I have been more thoughtful about something? Could I have got them a gift because I knew they've had a tough week or tough day or just for the heck of it? How could I have been better? So that's another important thing to reflect on each day. How can I do better? What did I do wrong? Sometimes we make mistakes and that's okay too. And we know that the more we ignore our mistakes, unfortunately, the more likely you are to continue making those mistakes. But that's what most of us tend to do. Because we can't, we feel afraid to look at our mistakes because of the judgment we give ourselves, we deny them. We'd rather sweep it under the rug. Literally, we sweep our problems under the rug, just like if you broke a vase, rather than trying to put it together or to tell the person that you broke their vase, we try to sweep it under the rug. But that doesn't help the problem in any way. It just makes the problem linger very much longer. So it's good to look at your mistakes with the loving attitude you would to a child. 
if you did see a child break a vase because they were playing, I would hope that your reaction wouldn't be to yell at them and scold them or to punish them or hit them for it, but it would be to recognize, okay, they made a mistake and you appreciate their honesty in looking at it. And let's see if we can be more careful so that doesn't happen again. So do the same thing with yourself. If you made a mistake today, rather than avoiding it, rather than ignoring it, and especially rather than assuming that means you're a bad person, a failure, or not good, recognize that that's okay. As a human being, you're always going to make mistakes because that's what we do. And learn from it, grow from it. The people who are actually the most loving with themselves when they make mistakes are the people that grow the most and actually avoid making those mistakes in the future. Most people think, I have to be hard on myself. I have to punish myself and put myself down to show that I have such a high standard. Or if I don't, I'm going to get lazy or I'm not going to try hard. But that's not the case. The more we beat ourselves up, the more we make those same mistakes. And they've even done this research looking at addiction. For addicts who relapse, the ones who take a more punitive approach to themselves, who call themselves names, beat themselves up, say I'm such a this, such a that, they actually are more likely to then use again the next day. And the reason is this, when you beat yourself up in that way, how are you going to feel? You're going to feel really bad. And guess what most addicts do when they feel really bad? They want to turn to that substance to help them feel good again. But if you relapse and say, oh, I, I slipped up, this isn't good. So you acknowledge it. You don't say, this is a good thing, it's a glorious thing. You, you recognize what's happened. But you actually say, I'm going to love myself and realize that I made a mistake, it's okay, but because I love myself, I'm actually going to make sure I don't do it again, and I'm going to work towards that because I want what's best for myself. So to actually acknowledge our mistakes and acknowledge ways that we can be better, we help ourselves grow, we help ourselves become a better person. And another question that you can ask yourself is, what do I want to do tomorrow to make tomorrow even better than today? And that could be lots of things. It could be taking care of yourself in some way. It could be devoting time to a friend or family or whoever else it might be. It might be starting a new activity, starting a habit, starting a new ritual, something that's going to make tomorrow better than today. And another aspect of that question is, what am I going to do tomorrow that's going to make me tomorrow night proud of what I did? And you can even write that down. So you tell yourself, this is something that I'm committing to myself, that tomorrow this is what I'm going to do to make myself proud. And there's no better feeling than consistently working on something and seeing the outcome. Because no one could take that hard work and the effort you've put into something away from you. So um, if you've written a book, and I'm actually in the studio today joining me, not on the air, but in the studio is Sarah Del Passan, and she wrote a book called The Eye in Life, and you've written a book. You put a lot of time effort into that, and then when you hold that book in your hand, no one could take away the time, effort, dedication that it took to write that book, and you have that. Now, for a lot of us, we might not write a book and have actual tangible thing to hold from the fruits of our labor, but there's lots of other ways that you see that and you feel that. And because I felt it myself, and I know everyone else has too, and we know how good it feels, that's why I'm encouraging everyone to think about that. What can you do and work towards that when you do it, you're going to feel good about? And recognize that 
No big goal is achieved overnight, but each day you can work towards it and make sure that you do because you're worth it and you're going to feel good about it when you get there. And this type of pre-sleep ritual can be part of the process of keeping you aligned with your goals, aligned with who you are and who you want to be, the values you have and the kind of person that you want to become. But it's a very dangerous thing to live our life without reflecting on who we are and who we want to be and who we are being every single day. So if you don't have your own pre-sleep ritual, maybe you can add these questions and these reflections in what you do. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, this past weekend here in the United States, it was Thanksgiving, a time when People get together, family members get together, maybe family members you don't see that often, all come together and celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving. And overall, it's a very lovely and good thing, but something that's almost cliche to talk about is the fights that occur over Thanksgiving dinner. And you see this in TV shows or in Saturday Night Live sketches, but it's this kind of cliche thing where you're supposed to see a fight happen between some family members over Thanksgiving. And like lots of cliches, it's a cliche because there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of times people do fight over Thanksgiving dinner. People who don't see each other that often get together and they talk and things come up and issues are brought up and it can turn into fights. And so that happens a lot. Uh, My own Thanksgiving, I spent time with family and me and my brother and a few cousins, we play cards. And it's kind of funny because sometimes when we're playing cards, we play hook and a variation of that with points. It gets really intense. And we had some interesting yelling going on around three in the morning, uh, Saturday night, talking about you should have played this or you did that or why do you see it this way? And it got really heated. Now, fortunately, most of our types of arguments start with hook and end with hook. So it doesn't really extend past that. And we felt good afterwards, but it got pretty intense. Um, but overall, we left feeling that we loved each other. But I know that this does happen, of course. The, the fights sometimes can be over bigger things than cards, and they leave people feeling pretty bad. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because conflict is almost inevitable when it comes to relationships. Not almost. It is inevitable. It's going to come up. But what's important is how we deal with the conflict. Or unfortunately, how many of us choose not to deal with conflict. And by that I mean what I see in a lot of families in general, but Persian families especially, is that there is some kind of argument, some kind of disagreement, and it could become heated and become very ugly. And then what happens is rather than any type of attempts to repair what has happened, repair the damage, repair the fight and come to some kind of solution or agreement or process what's happened, the two people just decide to cut each other out of their lives, to just end the relationship completely. And I'm sure everyone listening either themselves or knows someone who has a very close family member, maybe a sibling or a cousin or a parent, that they have cut their relationship with completely because of some fight, some disagreement 
that happened years ago. Sometimes to the point where people don't even really remember what the fight was about, but they just know they don't talk to so-and-so anymore. And it's really sad because, of course, it affects those two people very strongly, but it has a ripple effect to family members around them as well. Their kids, their spouses, other family members, you know, could feel uncomfortable. How do we all get together? Do I invite this one? Do I invite that one? Unfortunately, it becomes very ugly. But to me, the point that's most important is this idea that a fight isn't the end of a relationship. A disagreement isn't the end of a relationship or an indication that someone doesn't love you or can't love you. We have to accept first and foremost that every relationship, even the most beautiful, loving relationship, is going to have conflict. Actually, it can be said that the closer a relationship is, the more likely it is that conflict will erupt in that relationship. You might go to Starbucks every day and think the barista is very nice and you have very short conversations with them, but you probably will never have a really heated argument with them because you're not that close with that person. They serve a function and you serve a function in their life as a very superficial relationship. But if you have a husband or a wife or very close family members or parents and their kids, because of the closeness and the time they're going to spend together, you're going to have arguments. So we have to accept this. Arguments, disagreements, fights are a part of human relationships. There's no such thing as a perfect relationship without fights, and there's no such thing as having no one get mad at each other at any time. We have to accept that this is going to happen. Now, with that being said, how we fight is very important. If you fight, that's going to happen. But the how is very important. If when you fight, you become very nasty, you become abusive, that actually could lead to the end of relationships. So I should make that clear. I'm not saying that no relationship should end. If someone is abusive towards you, if someone continually disrespects you, even with you letting them know that you don't like what they're doing, that what they're doing is disrespectful to you, cutting that relationship makes sense. You've made your attempts to try to make things better, and if they're not going to respect you, there doesn't that doesn't have to fit into your life. You shouldn't have to accept that. I'm talking about disagreements that people have where they have a disagreement or a fight that becomes heated, but nothing happens that crosses a line that can't be uncrossed. So what do we do rather than avoid the fights? Well, what I would say is we have to be ready to face it head on. You have to be ready to talk about it. And not only do we have to be ready to talk about it, we have to make sure we teach this lesson to our kids. Because what I see in a lot of Persian families is they say, they themselves act this way. They won't try to resolve their fights. And then their kid will have an issue with a teacher or their child will have an issue with another kid. And rather than saying, okay, you had a fight with this boy in your school, let's talk about what you want to do to resolve that fight. The parents using their own strategy of avoidance they go in and they say, okay, I want to move my kid into another class so that he avoids that boy that he got into a fight with, as if that boy is now some kind of poison or toxin and I want my kid to be around it. And it does two things. One is it robs your child of this great opportunity to recognize that we can have fights, we can have arguments and disagreements, and you're actually going to have them, and we can still resolve those issues with those people and the relationship can continue. That fight doesn't have to be the end of the relationship. It doesn't have to be the end 
of them interacting with that person. You take away that opportunity from your kid and you don't allow them to have it. And you're also not allowing them to maybe create a good relationship with them. Many people will tell you that some of the people they're closest with actually very early on in the friendship, they had a big fight. They had a big disagreement. And because of how they overcame it, they actually got closer. And this is exactly what we see in romantic relationships. Fights don't destroy them, but actually disagreements, if handled well, lead to more emotional intimacy and closeness. If you have a disagreement with your husband or wife and you talk it through and you each share your side to one another and come to some kind of peaceful resolution, you're going to feel so much closer to one another than you did if you never had that argument. And this is something that I'm sure everyone can attest to that's been in a relationship. That feeling of closeness that you have um, that very often leads to makeup sex in a lot of relationships. It's because now you've become closer. There's this feeling that you are closer to one another. Now we can show children that in all ages that you can resolve a conflict that doesn't have to become the end of a relationship by talking to them about this, letting them know, okay, you had a fight with so-and-so, what do you want to do now? And the steps that it takes are the same pretty much with whatever type of relationship we're talking about. Now, conflicts are complicated, so I'm not saying that every conflict easily gets resolved, but there are a few basic steps that we want to make sure we take. One is that both people have to be able to present their side. They have to present what they experienced. I am hurt because you did such and such thing, or I was insulted when you used that word to describe me or describe uh, someone close to me. So both sides have to express themselves. And then importantly, the opposite of that in a way has to happen where the other side has to acknowledge what that person has said. They have to recognize that even though I might not agree with you, I can understand that you were hurt when this thing happened, when I said that or when I didn't say that or when I did that. There has to be that acknowledgement in order for both people to come together. Now, importantly, most people think that to resolve a conflict, you have to agree on everything that happened. But this is not the case. Uh, as we like to say, you can agree to disagree. So both people can come to a peaceful resolution without actually agreeing with each other. I can still think, you know what? What you did still to me was not okay, but I can accept that you did it because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And I can see that from your perspective, it made sense and you didn't mean to hurt me or to cause me any harm. And we can move on from that. And person B can say, I can see how that was offensive to you, even though this is why I did it as I explained to you, but um, I can understand how you didn't like that. And even maybe I'll, I'll choose not to say that anymore. And this is where a big part of conflict resolution comes when we're talking about relationships. And that's the power of apology, the power of saying, I'm sorry. The quickest way to resolve a conflict is just acknowledging your part of what happened that I can see how I made a mistake here. I'm sorry that I said this or I did that. This is the most powerful thing we can get to change the anger in our heart for someone that has hurt us to soften up, to turn actually into compassion and connection with the other person. Just those two words, I'm sorry. And of course we have to mean I'm sorry. We can't just say it to 
absolve ourselves of guilt or to get out of the situation. We have to genuinely, genuinely mean, I'm sorry for what I did to hurt you. I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings in that way. And this process, and of course, it's not always going to look the same way. Even if I'm giving you a few suggestions, doesn't mean you're going to follow what I did. But the idea that I want to resolve this conflict with you, that attitude alone is going to be very meaningful and valuable. So if you're listening and there's someone in your life that you have cut ties with or you have decided you cannot be in a relationship with, I would hope you would reconsider that and recognize that almost any disagreement or argument can be resolved. And almost any relationship between family members, again, in the extreme cases when some lines have been crossed, I understand, but in general, most relationships can be salvaged. There can be some resolution that at least, at least leads to a relationship continuing. You don't have to be the closest with each other. You don't have to spend all your time together, but you don't have to hate each other because hate only hurts yourself. It only causes you pain and even the people around you. It doesn't lead to anything good or positive. So if you have someone like that in your life, I would hope you take that step. And for many of us, and this is very true in the Persian community, we feel that the person who takes that first step, who maybe even says, I'm sorry, first, is somehow the weaker one, that somehow they were wrong, that somehow they were the ones that didn't have enough pride in themselves, when that couldn't be further from the truth. It takes a very big person to say, I'm sorry, first. I can acknowledge I made a mistake. Not that you did something wrong that made me make that mistake, that I can see my own shortcoming. So if you can be that bigger person, that's going to go a long way in helping you to create better relationships in your life. And as I said before, what for me is very important is showing your par- your children that. As a parent, what you model is what your children are going to learn most from you, not what you tell them. You can tell them it's good to keep your friends and to try to solve things, but if they see that you haven't talked to your sister for 18 years, they're going to say, okay, well, you say that, but I don't really see you doing it, and so I'm going to feel the same way. And I see parents constantly robbing their kids of these opportunities. So if you're a parent and your child has a fight with someone, you should think, great, this is my opportunity to teach my child that conflicts can be resolved, that they have to take ownership and responsibility for what they contributed to the conflict. They can say, I'm sorry, and they can actually continue being friends with that person. They can create a relationship with them that can last beyond this fight. Fights aren't the end of relationships. Fights are an inevitability of human relationships, something that's going to happen. If you're married and you have a fight, you should think this is okay. We're going to get closer as a result of this. We don't have to become more distant. So the next time you're having a family gathering, don't be so worried that the fight might happen. It doesn't have to be the end of the world. It's okay. And actually, it's likely that a fight might happen um, anytime you see someone that you're close to, and that's okay. So we have to learn that fights are okay, arguments are okay. They don't signal the end of relationships, but we can learn to resolve them and to become closer as a result. So we're getting close to the end of tonight's show. And again, I want to announce the book for next week. It's Altered Traits. The Science Reveals How Meditation Changes Your Mind, Brain, and Body by Daniel Goldman and Richard J. Davidson. I'll be talking about that on the show next Monday. And as I always mention, please send in your recommendations for books of the week. I've gotten 
some that I've actually incorporated into the books of the week this year. And because of the way things have been going and I'm enjoying the process, um, I'm deciding not to just keep it for this year. So the books of the week will continue next year as well. So don't think there's only a few left. If you have any ideas, please send them my way. All right. Thank you all the listeners out there. And thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you.